Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for downloading this second episode back from our hiatus. I hope you enjoyed last week's show featuring the general counsel from the Mayo Clinic talking about HIPAA and social media. This is a recording of a panel that I moderated for the Social Media Club in Los Angeles on business-to-business social media. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Eric Schwartzman. I'm the CEO of a company called Comply Socially. And we help employers uh, manage the risk and capitalize on the opportunities of social media at work. I'm also the author of the first book on B2B social media uh, that I co-wrote with uh, Paul Gillen, Social Marketing to the Business Customer. And I do a podcast called On the Record Online, and I'm recording this panel, and we'll put that up on the podcast as well if you want to revisit it later. And um, it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists tonight. Uh, on my left is Rachel Luxemburg. She's a principal strategist at Adobe. Uh, next to her, Stephen Gundy. He's enterprise relationship manager at LinkedIn. Uh, next, we have Eric Brownstein. He is uh, executive vice president for marketing at YTM. And last but certainly not least, Lauren Buckman is a marketing consultant specializing in channel marketing. So welcome all. Um, I'm going to try to really, I'll do my best to try to really make this worth your while. I prepared some questions here, and I'm going to throw them out to the panel, and I won't direct the first one to anyone, but I'll throw it out and we'll see who takes it. Um, the topic tonight is the use of social media for business-to-business applications. We know that businesses make decisions very differently from consumers. For example, a business buyer of raw materials used in the manufacturing of a product is going to be interested in factors like accessibility and quality, not necessarily factors like promotions and pricing. Consumers, on the other hand, are going to make buying decisions much more impulsively. Businesses make purchasing decisions by committee. Consumers make them alone or with their wife's approval. So my first question that I'll put out is, uh, since businesses and consumers make decisions so differently, how do the differences between B2B and B2C sales drivers require a different social media marketing approach? What do B2Bs do differently when they turn to social media? Take it out of this holder. Dumber than the, than the microphone. Hopefully, I'll have something valuable to say. Um, well, I think it's an interesting thing. <clears throat> it's a great question, Eric. Um, the one thing that I want to lead with is, while the drivers um, for these business decisions are different, and the number of people um, involved in these decisions are are greater than a lot of the consumer stuff out there. The one thing that I don't want anyone to walk away from this panel um, is thinking that you're selling to a business. I want everybody to remember that you are selling to a person. 
And as people, no matter what the decision is, we always decide emotionally and then defend rationally. And our job, I think, as B2B marketers is to provide social media content and messaging that walks, that, that strikes a balance between um, reaching somebody in their pain point or their concern or something that would make them feel great about how they do their job and also following up with the rationale that they can take, you know, run up the flagpole to their boss or to the person in HR. So um, I would say that generally finding that balance is a lot harder um, than consumer marketing, but, uh, but it all has to be value-based from the get-go. Um, I, I appreciate you actually leading with that. Um, in the prep that I did for this panel, I came across um, a, PR, uh, a PR sort of marketing agency that I visited up in San Francisco that you probably all know. Uh, I don't actually know how you pronounce it. Gyro, Hero, J-Y-G-Y-R-O, Gyro. And I think they, you know, they're being a little, um, you know, dramatic, but on one of the pages in the big headline it says, B2B is dead. And the idea was exactly what you said. You're not marketing to a company, you're marketing to an individual. And an individual who has emotions and is not necessarily thinking rationally all the time. Um, and I think that one of the core things about social media is thinking through the lens of, of whether you're talking about marketing or whether you're talking about the longer term of relationship and engagement. And so social media is often seen, I think, um, mistakenly as a bigger and better bullhorn. Um, and so connecting with people and cutting through the clutter is one way of looking at, at marketing and social media. And building a community and ongoing relationships is another. And I think that's when you can get much more into the longer term process of business needs and the objectives of the audience you're actually looking for. Oh, I'll go that way. Uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree with everything that you guys said previously. I think you start with the goal in mind. Uh, I think with B2B marketing, it's really focusing on just getting someone to want to have a conversation where with B2C, it's really getting someone to, as a point of sale, get someone to purchase your product, buy your good or service. But at LinkedIn, is core focus is B2B. It's just given our demographic, given the people that we've been able to collate on our network. You know, there's not a tremendous amount of, you know, Procter & Gamble, you know, marketing toothpaste to people. It just, it doesn't work. Um, you see a lot of kind of GM and larger companies doing products like that and serving up various advertisements because they want to engage with our demographic because it's fairly affluent and well-educated uh, and or have the ability to make that uh, purchasing decision. But still, it is about starting a conversation so that they're willing to go through that process rather than, hey, let's serve them up something that the individual can take action on and then you know have the end goal of buying that good or service. I think the the missing link here that, that we're all sort of dancing around is that social, the role social media can provide here is about branding. It's about providing air cover so that 
when somebody does want to make a decision, they don't have to go into the boss's office and say, oh, well, we want to, you know, I want to do this, and the guy's like, who? You need, you can use social as a way to provide that air cover and increase the mind share of your product. And that is a role that social can play, you know, across a number of different segments. And that starts getting into content strategy, and that starts getting into a whole lot of other, you know, details in the nitty gritty. But what you're really talking about is branding strategy. And that's applicable for B2B as well as B2C. So, PR has traditionally been about earned media. Uh, but earlier this month, Steve Rubell uh, was appointed Chief Content Officer at Edel, where his work will be with paid media. When it comes to B2B social media, what works best? Paid, earned, or owned, or some combination of all three? And what criteria should we be looking to evaluate when we allocate our resources among all three? <laughs> I can give you kind of LinkedIn's take, and this may or may not answer your question. Um, so LinkedIn is all about providing the most relevant information and content to its member base. And we have an advantage over a lot of other websites that don't base on guessing. So when you're served up an ad on Yahoo, it's because you visited ESPN and then you visited Wall Street Journal and then they think you're a male that was you know 35 to 40 years old and we're going to serve you up this ad. So it's, it's behavioral targeting. LinkedIn, you don't have to do that. So um, based on the fact that there are 200, you know, 200 million plus members have volunteered a tremendous amount of information about themselves, um, we can be very, very targeted and relevant with the information that we serve up. And so what we're trying to do uh, is particularly around the earned part is instead of serving, you know, doing a campaign based where they click on an ad and then that's kind of the end result. They go to another website and they can choose to engage or not. You can collate a great group of followers or focus group through some of this earned media where the campaign not only delivers the right demographic that you're looking for, but it allows you to also have a group that you can collate to then further use for those types of you know, campaigns or focus groups and things like that. Uh, and so we're very much about the follower ecosystem, which may be a little bit before our time, because I think the world of marketing is still very much stuck on the world of you know, click-through rate and all that type of things, and ads serve versus clicks. And um, you know, I think that's really where we as a company are focused. Lauren, if a client comes to you and says, hey, how do I divvy it up? I know I need to be on social, I know I need to do some paid media, I know I need to do some PR, I know I need to have my own blog. How do, what, how do you sort of look at the client, evaluate them, and decide how they should slice up the, the pie? Um, I came from a big ad agency with big clients with big spends. I work with smaller clients. Um, you know, companies with 60 to 100 or 150 employees, um, they're making money and, and in the B2B sphere that's one of the beautiful things that happens is if you're selling to other businesses, you don't have to be that big. You can be a 15 person company pulling in 20 million a year. Um, so with that in mind, with the smaller clients, what I tell them is um, I pretty much won't look at paid. Um, I look at all earned and social, and we might do we might throw some dollars towards you know some promotion within the social networks, but 
I think one of the interesting things and what's fun about B2B is that you have such a highly specific target audience. And that can make our jobs really fun, which, you know, because we can say we know exactly what this person cares about in their job function. And we know how our product or service is going to help them in their job function. And we're going to send out that exact message. You're an HR manager, you care about this, that's all we're going to talk to you about. Um, but with that highly specific audience, it also means that you know, it's not necessarily, it, it lacks the scalability that consumer stuff has. Um, and so paid to me seems far more scattershot than is what's necessary. Um, Eric, you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I mean, the company I work with now kind of lives in this space of the relationship between owned and paid and earned. And, um, Jonah Peretti, the founder of Buzz, BuzzFeed, had a uh, sort of, if you've never seen him speak, by the way, is the greatest keynote ever. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, he describes Mormons versus Jews as a social media phenomena and a marketing phenomena, um, and just how quickly the Mormons have gone up. Anyway, total aside, very funny. Um, but his, his point essentially was that they have a big owned media base, right? They've got a lot of people going to BuzzFeed now, tens of millions. And their strategy is to uh, build on their own media base, use paid media to generate earned media, right? So they're promoting content for brands, um, allowing their own media base to sort of give it that nudge, but the paid is now with good content with an objective of getting extra earned media for free for that brand. So YTM, the company I work with, is we take YouTube videos and we use paid media to distribute them and put them up on stage. And if they're good, we give them a chance to, quote, go viral and generate earned media. Now, is this for B2B? It can be. So I mean, we've done... It, I mean, do you have a specific instance you can tell us about B2B for, for this? For the YouTube stuff, we did um, Salesforce. And it was small business apps. And so their target was very specific for a small business owner. They had an owned media base that was somewhat negligent. And we provided them, I think, about 420,000 guaranteed paid views. And the video ended up with about 550,000 views. So they generated you know, an extra 100,000 earned views by putting it on stage and giving it exposure. So the point is, is that there is a great combination to be found. It depends how big your own base is. It depends what your time frame is, too. If you don't have a big own base, it's going to take you a lot longer to generate the earned media. So that paid push is really important. And I think the goal, obviously, is that you don't need to do any paid media. I mean, the advertising is that unfortunate byproduct of not having enough friends and not having enough of an own media base. I'm not sure I agree with that. Certainly, if we're going to talk about something like <laughs> talk about something like Facebook um, and the way Edtrank is working these days, if you even want to reach your your own base, you have to ante up. If you want to reach more than what is it, thirty percent of the base that is is seeing your actual placements in your in the times in your in your in your stream. 
So, uh, and luckily the, the, the base spend is pretty low, so even for a small business, it's still a reasonable proposition to do that, and so it's something I, I, don't, I see as almost a no-brainer. But if you start talking outside of Facebook, if you're talking about placements elsewhere, if you're talking, then, then yes, it very much depends on what your goal is, what size company is, what kind of target you're going for. But the, no matter how you do it, the interrelationship of all three is, is clearly important. I mean, I don't think you can discount the importance of one over the other. So as you probably noticed from the way I introduced myself there on the panel, uh, I've got a new company that I'm involved with called Comply Socially. And it's for those of you out there who have been marketing via social or handling PR via social for your agent, for your agency or your client or your boss uh, for some time now. And you've realized that unless you can get other people liking, sharing, commenting, it pretty much goes nowhere because as we all know on social media, reach is a function of engagement. If no one engages, no one sees it. You know, it's not like a press release where you, you know, you send it out over the wire and everyone gets it or a, uh, an email news blast, you know, that everyone's going to get. Even if you have thousands of Facebook friends or thousands of Twitter followers, the likelihood that someone's actually going to see it if others don't retweet it or others don't comment or like or share is, well, quite low. So if you're in a position now where you're, you know, handling social media on behalf of an organization and what you're trying to do is bring up the digital IQ of everyone else on the team so they actually get involved and start retweeting and sharing your stuff, um, but you need a practical way to train them and bring them up to speed, that's what Comply Social is about. So what we have is 80 hours of online courseware. It's all self-paced, on-demand courseware that you can use to bring the rest of your company or the rest of your team or your client or your boss up to speed on the value and the impact of social and also do it in a way that's responsible and going to keep everyone out of trouble because as you may have noticed, uh, you know, there's all sorts of government regulators now that are starting to rear their heads in legal matters between individuals and organizations and between customers and organizations. Um, one of those is the National Labor Relations Board. Another of those is the Federal uh, Trade Commission. And there are dozens of others that are starting now to regulate how companies use social media. So if you're ready to bring the rest of your team up to speed, you've got it down, you get it, but your boss doesn't, your coworkers don't, we can help. Check us out at complysocially.com. And um, if anyone would like access to a free class, all you have to do is send a tweet requesting it to at complysocially. Um, first, go to www.complysocially.com. Tell me which class you want. And then tweet me at complysocially. And I'll send you a free promo link. And you can check out a class for free. Now, once you get access to that class, you'll have lifetime access to it. So again, if you're ready to bring the rest of your team up to speed on how to use social media effectively for business, complysocially.com has a solution for you. Uh, I hope you'll check us out. And now back to the panel. In his new book, What's the Future of Business? Uh, Brian Solis argues that the future of social marketing is about engineering deliberate customer experiences that inspire 
social sharing. And uh, he progresses from Google's zero moment of truth, the research phase before you make the purchase, through Procter & Gamble's first moment of truth when you purchase, the second moment of truth when you get home and unwrap it and use it. And he adds what he calls the ultimate moment of truth. And this is where you're inspired to share your experience, negative or positive, based on how the experience with the product or service went. So tell us how you or your clients are inspiring others to share the experiences they have with your products or services. And let's start Rachel with you. It's interesting you should ask that because we've, um, over the last, say, I guess nine months, we've been implementing a, a ratings and reviews program for some of our some of our applications, and that's very much targeted around getting people to leave reviews on the, of our product and then share them out, and then we also are being resharing them in, in some of our other channels. So that's more around the creative suite, which I still suppose you could classify as B2B, given that, that a lot of our buyers are freelancers or you know creative professionals, not, not consumer users. Um, I'd like to see very much how that work, how that plays into our digital marketing space, which is something we, we haven't done a ratings and review program, but getting back to sharing reviews and making sure those are shared socially, I think that's a very critical component to getting that third-party voice in your marketing message. I think that's everyone's goal here, and this may glide a little bit more into B2C rather than just strictly B2B, but you're, everyone's trying to get their customer to be an advocate for their product. It's the strongest thing that you can have for your company. Um, you know, serving up the best Super Bowl ad does not match you know, your friend telling you this product's just the best thing since sliced bread. And so I think that most marketers are trying to create that user experience in which it turns them, it's like, I can't live without this product or operate day to day without this product or service in my life. And then that turns your customer from being a customer to really selling your product for you, um, where you can generate this natural virality that many great products today has occurred because, you know, Uber, wonderful product, they've done no marketing whatsoever. And they're, you know, it's again, B2C, but um, there's just tremendous number of products that are out today due to social media that catch on because they provide a wonderful user experience. Uh, the customer then becomes an advocate for the product and that helps build upon the base of their users. Um, it's not 100% relevant for our company now just because so often we're kind of the secret sauce behind the scenes and brands and other agencies actually don't want other people to know they're using us. Um, but a, a really great example for me personally and, and others, um, I think it's valuable to look at is HubSpot. And to the extent you're familiar with them, um, they to me are the perfect example of how to do B2B social media and content marketing the right way. I've probably downloaded 20 free white papers from them, shared them with you know people all the time, and I love the brand, and I still don't really even know what the hell they do. <laughs> um, but when I have enough of a vague sense, I recommend them to people. Like I tell people, you should look at HubSpot, they're really good at helping agencies do marketing. 
So would you actually say that's successful if you don't know Absolutely what they do? Absolutely successful because I know enough of what they do that when someone gives me a flavor or when it comes up in conversation, I'm like, you should check out HubSpot. Or I'm sharing their white papers with other people. And because it's relevant for me as someone who's run an agency and who works in an agency to share with other people. Um, I'm working with a client currently where we are writing case studies and the process of doing of writing those case studies I'm sure everyone has experienced is it's brutal it takes forever to get approvals the language that's being used there how much the client wants to give away about how they benefit from benefited from the product it's really really tough um, once these first three are done we are doing quick cast YouTube videos of it and then using some of the, um, the pull quotes from those case studies that we're writing to post on Facebook alongside the um, you know logos or, or um, video clips of the case study subjects talking about it. Um, it's not brain surgery, but it's just a very practical application of how you can seed, use positive user feedback um, for your brand. So we're, we're using it as a, as a seeding technique. So um, this is a, a subject that I had some conversation around prior to the panel. And I think it's a common position probably a lot of people in the audience are in right now. So let's say you get B2B social media. You get it. You understand the value. But your boss or your client doesn't. Give us, if you would, some strategies for winning buy-in and resources for B2B social media initiatives. Well, yeah, there is, well, the comment was, I work in a daily, we must have bureaucracy. But on the other hand, our, our, our product is, is, is for digital marketers and includes a social, media, a social media set of tools. So it's not exactly a hard sell for us. So I, I, I can't honestly say I've run into that problem, but that I'm, I have the great good fortune of having a product that's right in that, in that sweet spot. So I don't have a whole lot constructive there, sorry. Okay, and I don't want the panel to feel obligated to answer every question. If you feel like you have something to add, great. If not, there's other questions that I promise you I'm going to drill <laughs> down on you. I actually do so. have a case study of this. I, and I hope I'm not dominating too much, but um, I worked as the communications director at the Associated General Contractors of America. Our customer base were, uh, um, our membership was based upon construct commercial construction companies. Um, it was a really tough sell internally. Um, what I started off with was with our um, director of public affairs, and I showed him first how he could use Twitter to gain better um, coverage and make some relationships with reporters. And we just, we, I just found like some, some small baby projects said that I would handle them myself, and when we went from 2,000 followers to 11,000 followers, suddenly the CEO kind of sat up and, and took notice. But it was, it was, um, it's a long fight. It's one that takes time, investment, patience, and I would say most of all, training. Um, the data that we get back, the statistics that are being thrown around in our industry people can get sideways on them all the time. And, and there's always a new number for who's using Facebook or Pinterest or, or whatever it is. Um, 
but I think that if you can come in anticipating that they that they'll be skeptical. And, and show them, hey, not every social media platform is gonna be right for you. I'm not gonna have, you know what, general contractors, we're not gonna be on Pinterest. Like, that, that is not a good fit for us. But Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, absolutely. You know, we can set up these groups. So just showing, like, real-life examples and then backing up those examples with the numbers. But I would just say, like, baby stepping is, is what made it work there. And I just say, if you can get a bunch of, like, rich old, dudes that own construction companies to start getting engaged in social media, I think you can get anybody. I got an interesting example, I think, um, this is before I'm wearing the YouTube hat, um, I was running a social media agency, and um, met the CEO of a Fortune 500 company called ABN. And ABN is probably one of the least sexy companies that exists even beyond contractors. These are the guys that do parking structures like AMCO, um, facilities management. I mean, you can't imagine, at least for me, a less sexy business. What or happened was, was more, more profitable. Exactly. <laughs> um, but what was fascinating is I went to, uh, I convinced him to let me come to their senior executive summit for three days, and there was 200 people. Um, this company has 200,000 employees and all over the world, global empire. And we sat down, the CEO and I, and we talked for about two hours. And then I sat through three days of meetings. And afterwards, basically what I did with him was I kept it way up here. We didn't get into tools, tactics, or even strategies. We talked about the objectives of his company. And this is a company that's been around for 100 years and has had five CEOs. And all they do is think big picture. That's what makes them successful. And we boiled it down to three things that made sense for him. One was they were going through a whole rebranding and they had multiple companies that they had to put under this one umbrella of one ABM. So that was a key for him and I explained we could do that around social. The second was growth and owning a category of a conversation which was around integrated facilities management, sustainability, and he loved the idea of you know, having conferences where people would come and they would be the host of the conversation. Um, and then the third was talent and retention. And this idea of being kind of a cool company that got social, he saw as a way to bring younger people. So I think one way you pull in the senior management at a, especially a big company is you operate where they're comfortable, which is big picture. Stevie, have you done any piloting of programs to prove to management that it's going to work and then expanded it from there. Could you talk about that? Yeah, all the time. I think the most important thing about a pilot is make sure that you guys are all looking at the same data points and that you've agreed upon a goal beforehand and you leave yourself enough time to achieve the goal. I've tried to run pilots in you know, a month, two months, and it just doesn't work. You need at least a quarter or a little bit more to be able to effectively get a large enough sample size to be able to get the results that worthy and especially when you start talking about a larger buy that's more when the reluctance comes in to take a gamble and I think LinkedIn has an advantage because we have a tremendous amount of data on our user base that's generated and so you know within every customer conversation that I have I you know, almost pretend I'm going into a courtroom where I use the data as evidence to deliver them a business case where I can at least present them with a gamble that's better than 50-50 odds, like this is gonna work. 
And so, um, and in many cases, you know, it's much higher than that. You know, we can say that these companies and these people are engaging with your employees, so they're coming there anyways, so if you deliver them or put a piece of content in front of these individuals that we know fit into these buckets, they're going to engage because it's relevant to them. Um, and so there's many of these opportunities that we use to first prove out the value over a you know, quarter or six month period. Um, you know, con have conversations back and forth, make sure that you have that buy-in so that when this performs to their expectations or midway through it's not performing, you are able to have those conversations to tweak it and readjust or just move forward once the, the campaign works. Just one more question on this subject, because I think it's an important one, particularly for people who are with agencies. So let's say you're pitching some new business, and you want to go in, you want to pitch not just traditional, you want to pitch social as well, but maybe they don't really get it. How can you show them proof and evidence that their customers are making purchasing decisions on social media? and that there's an opportunity to steer those purchasing decisions in their direction. Is that something you do? Would you, would you go through that exercise and so how? And how would you sort of formulate the pitch for the specific client? Usually when I bring up social as part of an overall integrated mix, I and if they haven't ever thought about it and they're doing nothing, I will never lead with any guarantees of sales. Um, because during the first quarter, half year, first year, I mean that's an activation period and that's not when we're getting sales out of social. If they happen um, during that period, then great. Mostly what I try to talk to them about is give some examples of what happens if you don't do social. What are, um, you know, in B2B we have the FUD sale, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, and so I will talk to them about, you know, the, the oil company that didn't think they needed a Twitter handle and so Greenpeace took it over for them. Um, I remind them that there will be a conversation happening about them. They just won't be invited to it. And I also let them know, frankly, 15, 20 years ago, you know, you were fine if you had a brochure. And then later on, you needed to have a website. And if you didn't, it made your, it, it hurt the, uh, the perception of your business. Um, I see having just basic social media platforms put in place as good housekeeping on the marketing. Um, it's expected of you, and you're you're expected to do it, and you're expected to do it well. Um, so that that's where I like to start with them. I, I think social media. You know, if you're familiar with the theory of crossing the chasm, where you have your early adopters and innovators, the first people to try a product, and then between them is this kind of gap where you know largely most products die because it's before you can really get into this early adopters, which is a larger demographic. You've late adopters, laggards, and LinkedIn social media has crossed over to the mainstream. You know, every day you're on CNN or you see a natural disaster where tweets are being shared and 
it is just, it is so part of the fabric of who we are every day. And it's bringing the internet, which is just this absolute massive information and delivering very relevant material to each and every one of us um, in a pretty seamless way. I mean, it's really amazing. Um, and I think we're at the point that the value has been proven. And so it's almost that fear. If you don't get there, someone's already there before you. Uh, and so now you've got this hill to climb or here's this great opportunity and if we, you know, just trust in the fact of how social media has played itself out and, you know, put trust, put the right content out there, you know, it, it's going to be successful. Um, and I just, I can't stress that enough. Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business -business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step -step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. So, in my book with Paul, we devoted a full chapter to B2B customer communities. And I have to tell you, after really looking into that, I, I think it's the killer app for B2B social marketing. I think it replaces case studies um, because it's easier and realer. Uh, but as you can see by the low ratio of comments to posts on some LinkedIn groups, if they aren't actively managed, they quickly descend into a spam fest. So the question is, what are the essential ingredients of a healthy B2B customer community? Um, sorry to answer back-to-back -back questions, but I'll, I'll start since LinkedIn is in the question. Um, so HP became our first company to acquire a million followers. Most of it was all organically. Uh, and people have their thoughts about HP as a company and how they're still innovating, but you know, the truth of the matter is they still are an extraordinarily large company with a very large customer base. Um, and they've done a tremendous amount uh, through groups, but it takes an active community manager to be present, to allow the right person that they want into the group, um, and then provide them the right content that they want the discussion to revolve around. Citigroup is another company that started just a pure women in the workforce group. I believe the group's over 100,000, just almost exclusively women, um, that Citigroup can engage regardless around their brand, uh, around working at the company. You know, it's just an extraordinary asset for them to be able to pose these type of questions, 
They've been very thoughtful and careful, and it's not something that can happen overnight. Good groups don't just spring up. They take work, they take a goal in mind, and they take a certain demographic that you're really trying to acquire. Many companies are launching media within LinkedIn against the right demographics to acquire those types of followers, just within groups, um, or acquire followers of their company that, so they can serve these types of messages. But that's, I think, where LinkedIn is really stressing. Um, we're going towards this follower ecosystem so that you have something lasting rather than just an advertising campaign. You have this group of 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people that all meet this certain criteria that you now have, as long as you deliver relevant content, it's worthwhile for these people to come back to. Um, you know, focus group for them to you know, have. So I think it's really the direction that we see the world going. And groups are um, so useful because it's not dependent on you to sustain the momentum. You can pop in and out as you like, but with Rachel, on the other hand, she has a very large addressable market. She's got a her own private uh, customer uh, online community. Talk to us a little bit about what it takes to sustain the momentum in your own white label customer community. Well. It's, I'm really glad you brought up the question because it, it raises something that, that's a bit of a just a quick pet peeve for me. Social media is not community. Commun the social media is essentially a broadcast channel or, at, or it's a conversation. But it's not a, con a conversation between a large group of people with the brand as a participant. It's one-on-one -on -one engagement with the brand. So for me, community is when you've got a group of customers together and the, the brand is a part of that but it's, it is only a part and larger conversation is happening even if the brand isn't there. And I actually also want to give a shout out to the LA Adobe User Group because uh, one of their members is, is here tonight and one of, the, one of our secret sauce is very much that our customer communities are very much the, in the driver's seat for a lot of our activities. We do have our own, our own Adobe communities, we have forums, we have user groups, but it is, at the scale that we're talking about, it is absolutely impossible to do that in a real, with a realistic budget if you do it all yourself. You have got to leverage your community and your community leaders to help you out with that. And if you have the right community managers and you have the right tool set and you seed that community appropriately and build it up, then your community will shift into the driver's seat and you will have that, that what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, amplifier effect that allows you to have even greater reach and greater scale than you would just with your own handful of community managers. So it's an incredibly powerful tactic. I completely agree that B2B customer communities are uh, almost a necessity if you're trying to really scale your message. One of the best lines I heard when I was doing interviews for the book was from a guy named Mark Yolke who runs the SAP customer communities. And he said, the best community managers are like farmers. They weed out the off-topic conversations and fertilize the on-topic conversations. What other traits do you look for in a community manager? So what do you look for in a community manager other than the ability to farm? Uh, um, patience, empathy, um, good people skills, 
good writing skills are always helpful, uh, communication in general, but I think empathy, being able to put yourself into the customer's shoes, understand understand your community members' issues and problems from the, from the external perspective, and then replicate that back into your company and be that voice of the customer, that is probably the most important thing, the most important trait a community manager can have is, is the empathy and the, the ability to communicate that effectively. So all things being equal, you've got two candidates. They're both empathetic. One really understands the mechanics of social media well. She's a Facebook ninja. She's a Twitter ninja. She knows embed codes. Is she a rock star too? Really got it. She's a social media rock star. <laughs> But her core area of knowledge is not in your products or services. On the other hand, you have a second candidate who knows nothing about the mechanics of social media, but he's also very empathetic and has the same character traits you mentioned, but he's extremely knowledgeable about Adobe products. Who's better, the person whose core intelligence is the product base of the community or the social media ninja? I'm going to hedge a little and would say it depends a bit about what you're trying to achieve with your community. Um, but I'd say if I had to choose, I'd go for the person with the social media skills because communication and the, the communication ability is a little harder to teach than product knowledge. Product knowledge can be acquired, but communication skills are, I'm not going to say they're impossible to learn, but they're harder to teach. So if you had to choose one, I'd go for communication skills over product knowledge. That, that person can also curate and find the yeah. information. And as long as they're a good question asker, they can, they can sort of take on that expert role without being the expert. Well, this is a good segue into the next topic I'd like to discuss with you. So another company that we uncovered, Paul and I, when we were writing the book, is a little company called Indium. And Indium makes solder paste solder paste. So if you've ever opened up a piece of consumer electronics and seen the green circuit board inside, there's little dollops of metal that attach the components to the circuitry, and that's solder. And uh, raise your hand if you ever purchased solder in the audience. There's some, this is unusual. Very unusual. Okay? Usually nobody raises their hand. Um, but, but let me tell you, okay, these guys have, Indium has 73 blogs maintained by 18 bloggers, all of who are engineers, and they have one who blogs solely in Chinese. Since they started blogging, they've had a 600% jump in leads. They stopped going to trade shows and advertising altogether. Not that many people buy solder paste, but those that do, back up the truck. So it really only takes 12 new clients in a given year to radically reshape the bottom line. According to their PR guy, Rick Short, the objective of the blogs are to get engineers talking to engineers and get everyone else out in the middle. B2B purchasing decisions are driven, after all, more often by subject matter experts than by marketing people. Marketing people open the door, but subject matter experts and salespeople close it. What's the point of starting a conversation on social media 
if your subject matter experts and your salespeople aren't there as well. Social media is a team sport, you can't do it alone. So how do you get everyone else in your organization on social media too? How do you build enterprise-wide digital literacy so that your subject matter experts and your salespeople are actively engaged in social media as well? How do you do an ambassador program inside of a B2B? They're a consumer company, but just copy what Zappos did. Um, Zappos ha requires, if, if this is something that you want to have happen at your company, and if those subject matter experts, those subject matter expert conversations are key to the buying process, um, then you, you have to get everyone in the company trained, period. And it has to be, it has to be a concerted effort, and that means that management has to has to completely buy into it and support it. Trained in what? In uh, social media literacy. So I, I mentioned Zappos, they have a required sort of boot camp that everyone who works for the company from someone doing customer support over the phone all the way up to the CEO takes. And everybody is highly encouraged to participate in it. Um, but because they, they want all of their employees to do it, they make sure that before their employees are sort of like unleashed, they're well trained and up to speed on, on what they should be doing and what's expected of them. It's also unique to Zappos though. I mean, every new employee works in the customer service before they even like get on the job. Like you take phone call. Customer service is what made Zappos as successful as they were. It was that just unforgiving just determination to supply the best customer service ever. Um, and they were just laser focused on it, and that is what made them as successful as they were. And so he's taken that type of, Tony's made that type of topic and demeanor and applied it to the other facets of his company. Um, so they're kind of unique, unique example. Um, but but it, does, it is an, an example of what happens when, you know, the C-suite decides we're going to invest in this and this is an important thing for us as a company and we're going to invest in training and make sure everybody gets it. Yeah. it it's a reasonable answer, definitely. But what about in the B2B space? Because that's a little different. And when you're trying to pry information out of subject matter experts who ne haven't necessarily been using social media to do their job, I mean, let's face it, we're all living through the transition here. But, you know, you have people entering the workforce every day who were raised with the impulse to share every interesting moment in their life, right? So once they inherit the mantle, there'll be no need to train anymore, <laughs> right? But they haven't. So, okay, so maybe, so tell us, what, what would you need to train them in? Well, this is, I think this is a pretty, this is something that one hears a lot. Like, well, the, the, the digital natives aren't going to, you know, this is their lifeblood. They're not going to need any training. And I don't think you come out of college or into the workforce knowing how to communicate in a business context. So even if you are completely comfortable with the tools, that doesn't necessarily mean you, have, you know how to use them in the, in the work world. So I think training is still going to, it's going to be a different type of training, but you're still going to have to train people. So, you know, it's not like, okay, this is Twitter, this is a tweet, but here's why this communication is not something you do on your work account. But you still have to do it. Um, 
I mean, I'll speak exclusively to LinkedIn, to um, the company initiatives to get their employees on LinkedIn, and it really all drills down to what benefits the employee themselves. So if they're in sales, uh, you know, is this going to drive more you know, revenue to their bottom line? If this is a hiring manager, is this going to drive more quality candidates? If this is you know, a division lead, is this going to drive you know, more revenue to the business? And so we all start kind of from its most basic sense that you start at Google, number one website in the world. Um, Google any one of your names, unless you're all secret celebrities, LinkedIn's probably one of the top three things that pops up in your profile, or pops up in Google search results. And so we try to present, if they believe that, okay, a lot of people use Google, I understand that, and now here's LinkedIn that this now allows me to present information to all of these people that I want them to see. You know, it, it helps me brand myself as a subject matter expert within the field that I do business in. I mean, it's, and it costs me nothing. It just takes 10, 15 minutes of my time to invest a little bit in this profile. And from that, they're going to benefit because that, that enables them to share jobs that the recruiters are uh, that the recruiters are posting. Or if the as a company status update, they're able to share that with their network. And this just from that simple action that enables just a huge amount of liquidity within expanding that message out to the rest of the networks, it, it's really become very impactful and we've been able to get a lot of companies you know, go from 50% of their client base, or excuse me, their employee base on LinkedIn to 75, 80, 90%, just because it enables them to push this message out to their connections, out to the people that really matter. Uh, and so that's really what we do, is just try to show them that LinkedIn can do that for you. So one other thing I think to throw in there, um, coming into a company, whether it's as an agency or as a consultant, um, is to think about guidelines. You know, a lot of companies get scared about having their employees on social media and they're looking for cut and paste kind of policies and so on. Um, interesting guy named Mike Bonifer, who some of you may know, um, wrote a book called Game Changers, and he talks a lot about improvisation and the rules of improvisation and the structured narrative and all the, the unstructured narrative, sorry. But this idea of you're letting people have their own voice and speak um, as an individual, but within sort of understood rules of the game. And the more that those are clearly articulated, the more comfortable I think oftentimes the company is in letting individuals speak as individuals, because as we all know, when someone is not speaking with their own voice, it comes across as you know hollow and fake and it backfires for sure. Um, I was also. I would also like to add. Um, you can, when trying to get employees to engage on this level, you can also use the carrot stick approach. Um, a client of mine has 80 employees in their office. Most of them are technol are um, programmers or like sort of deep deep technology folks, and um, we were afraid that we wouldn't be able to get anybody to contribute to the blog. But by talking with HR, getting buy up from management, we were able to have um, people's contributions to the blog become a part of their performance evaluation, so that's the stick. But um, since everybody's doing it, they also have some incentives going on um, to reward some of the um, 
the most well-written blogs, the most read, the most circulated. So using that, that um, dual approach, um, they have, again, they have six or eight employees, and they have a blog entry a day now. So. I have one more question I'm going to put to the panel, so hopefully you guys have some questions after that. Um, I've always really trusted LinkedIn recommendations because members have to write them themselves. But the fairly new skills and expertise endorsements on LinkedIn has been somewhat controversial because they're so easy to give. And some people say, for that reason, they're less meaningful. So I'd like to put the question to the panel to discuss. Do you trust skills and expertise endorsements? I'm going to answer last. <laughs> I want to hear it first. I do, but I take them with a grain of salt. Um, I love the recommendations um, feature. Um, I think that it can be very telling um, as to the kind of attributes that you hear about the, about a person over and over again. So you do start recognizing patterns, and sure, every time we ask a friend to write a recommendation for us, it's going to be glowing and wonderful. But you can still read through and see, you know, what are these, what are this person's real strengths? You can also look for where there's radio silence, and I think that's where you can find some value there. So if you read those with a skeptical eye, um, I think they can be, be really wonderful and and informative. Um, I also think that it's telling about a company culture when you see um, when colleagues and employees and supervisors um, recommend each other's work. I think that that can end up speaking um, volumes for a company, its culture, what it's like to work there, um, if they have good people there. So I think that they're helpful in those senses. I guess I think of it more as like <clears throat> like an interpersonal fun thing that happens between connections, less of a I'm going to evaluate this person. Um, like when someone endorses me for skills and I don't know who they are, um, I'm always like, oh, that was nice of them. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think recommendations are great. Like you said, when you go to someone's profile and you don't see any, um, it stands out to me. When you see 20 of them, it stands out as well. It's like, you know, it's, it's saying something, whether it's just they've made a lot of effort to ask their friends to give them recommendations. Um, but I think it's kind of like a community aspect of LinkedIn, of doing stuff for other people. That's the part of it that I like. Well, isn't this really just the, the wisdom of the crowds? Really, it's another way. Uh, you know, there's yes, there's certainly going to be some padding and some people clicking like, 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 or endorse, endorse, endorse. But when you start getting up to a critical mass, then I think there is at least some amount of validity to the uh, to the data that comes in. Just to just to push back, that one very good thought. Okay. So, is there when ease of use becomes a factor in? Think about like Wikipedia versus recommendations. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of wisdom in the fact on Wikipedia that you really have to invest some time to be able to become an editor. And so what sort of comes rises to the top is the result of people who are really have some skin in the game. Whereas on something like, you know, where it's just as easy to click, I mean, you see these 
god-awful Mashable headlines that get, you know, tweeted uh, 2,000 times. And, and they're, they're, I mean, you read the headline, you click through on the corresponding article, they're lies. I mean, the headline is it so sensational, it's a lie. I think they call that link bait. <laughs> uh, so, so the question is... So, when it becomes so easy... Oh, if it becomes so easy, then how can it still be accurate? Is there really still wisdom there when your only skin in the game is a click? That's a good question. I think yeah, I, it's not quite the same as sharing a headline because, for one thing, either you have to type in the, the skill you're endorsing for or the person has to put it there. So there is, there is some curation going on. So it's not just click, click, click. So I'd say, yes, there is, there is, so you wouldn't want to take it, you wouldn't want to take a LinkedIn recommendation as the only data point you take in, but I certainly think it's a data point that's valid when you're, when you're making an evaluation. Certainly when I'm hiring people, I'm going to look at that and use that as one of my pieces of data, but it's not going to be the only deciding factor. I had a dream I was going to get this question, so I, you know, I, I, so I think I'm somewhat prepared to answer it. Um, so LinkedIn rolled out endorsements like Q3 of last year. We just crossed over a billion endorsements in the whole network, so it's definitely something that has caught on very quickly. I can't say that it's not a product that doesn't come with a certain amount of noise, for sure. Um, I'm not the one that has anything to do with the creation of product. I don't have any programming skills. I just, you know, I, I think it comes down to if you can like a product or a service or a, you know, your news line, why can't you like a person? Why can't you like a person's skill? You know, it takes, if you guys are familiar with the profile completeness bar on LinkedIn, it only takes three recommendations to get 100%. To, once you have everything else pulled, recommendations the last piece, only three. And I think that when I look and I see someone with 40 recommendations, it's like, wow, like, I, I don't know if I'm impressed or like, they just spent a ton of effort on this, you know, all these recommendations. And, you know, I'm not saying I have four on my profile, like, I think it's really meaningful, I think it's great. People want to re recommend me, wonderful. But I appreciate the lightweight factor uh, that someone can say, yes, uh, I'm good at social media, I'm good at, um, you know, B2B sales, I'm good at, you know, what I do, and, I, you know, the majority of the endorsements that I receive are from people I've done business with or, or I know, I haven't had the experience, but I've not heard just from you that people are liking certain skills, they have no idea who these people are, so <laughs> definitely I think there's something questionable about that and not something that we can't tweak in the future, but I think LinkedIn is always trying to generate data that we can then collate to make really interesting to not only our member base and our clients. And if we can start using these to index people based on their skills, assuming that it's at least directionally accurate, I think we can do some really interesting things that help recruiters get to the right person faster, or business get to the right, you know, get to the right person. Um, with that correct skill set in a more timely fashion, saving the business money. Um, you know, I think that was the underlying goal of recommendations when we, or uh, endorsements when we started it. Could you use them to predict the results of March Madness? <laughs> I rely on Nate Silver for all my predictions. <laughs> so I literally have one bracket that is just Nate Silver's bracket. For any of you that are unfamiliar with Nate Silver, he's 
a just absolute ingenious statistician that has predicted the last two elections basically to the percentage point correct. And he also does um, March Madness stuff. And so I paid very little attention. He did. He did get the Super Bowl wrong. Um, so uh, he, I played it. So he's my bracket this year. And I'll let you know how he does. But um, it potentially, you know, predictive things is got a grain of salt. So now we're going to open it up for questions. Do we have a mic for that that we're going to use in the house? Or if not all, we can use mine. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, if you want to ask a question, if you would come up to the front here and say your name and who you are coming out, Jeremy, and say who you are, and then whoever's next will pass off the mic to that. Jeremy Pepper. Quick question. Jess Pepper on Twitter. Quick question about, like, no one brought it up, and it's my favorite mocking point. Google Plus for me to be. Besides SEO, does anybody use it? Anything using it? Y'all have smokes on your face? <laughs> we are using it. Sorry. We are using it, but not for B2B. We're using it um, for the Adobe brand account and for a couple of the accounts in the creative suite, but it's, that's, those are the ones that are the most, the most heavily trafficked and used for us. No. Just SEO, and then if something, you know, we keep an open mind in case something pops up, we're there. But, no. Tracy Bentel Black. Um, I have a question about Facebook. I have a lot of B2B clients who think they need to be on Facebook, but we don't really see a lot of value in it. What do you guys think about as much Facebook versus sort of more on LinkedIn or some of the other, like Twitter? I like to think of Facebook for especially those niche B2B clients where it's like how many how many people are you actually going to get on there? Um, treat it like your air cover. Um, it's it's the easiest way to reach the most amount of people. And um, if you're doing other social media work and you have a good content marketing strategy in place, is it really going to hurt you to have something up there? Um, at at worst, you can get some nice air cover and and um, and work on branding. Yeah, I agree. I'll speak like kind of exclusively from the employment brand space where companies are marketing themselves of more along the lines of why you want to work for us rather than why you want to use your product. Uh, Facebook has a billion plus users. If they were a country, they were the third largest country in the world. Um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely staggering what they've been able to achieve. You might as well put some content up there. Uh, you know, it's not that cost prohibitive, if anything, and so I, I think that most of my clients have some sort of company presence, um, just because they should, but I don't know how, the return that I've heard from it, the ROI that they get, you know, usually isn't that high, just because the demographic skews from eight-year-olds to 80-year-old grandmothers, so it's very tough to get the right base to their product. I think it, it also partly depends I mean, I think it's always good to just have it covered, as you said, the, the air cover to have the presence there. But I think you can be pretty creative sometimes about how you're using it. We had a client that was um, focused on game developers. That was who they were trying to reach. And they found they got a really good engagement with really, really stupid content that had just a little bit to do with that community specifically. 
like funny posts around games and things like that. They were never trying to sell or never trying to push their product, but that was the stuff that got shared amongst the people that they were cultivating. So I think it's partly like don't underestimate the fact that these are, once again, human beings. It's not necessarily yeah, selling the business. That. The other thing you can do also is a little bit of kind of guerrilla marketing to people that like competitors and relevant pages. Yeah. And you can always make the case that it's a lot easier to do a lot of sponsored stories when you have a lot of likes to the page. So um, here, let me move the uh, mic back here. If you could wait, can you wait until I bring you the mic? Well, we're recording it, so we won't get it on the recording. Hi, Zach Severino from the Mix Agency. I'm just going to reiterate um, Jeremy Pepper's question, Google Plus, because every time someone plus wants content, it influences the uh, their peers' search results, so I feel like that has a dramatic impact on marketing, and could you at least address that, not just all explicit? Thank you. Yeah, he said not including SEO, so that was sort of where I was being dismissive with the note, but for sure it's valuable, just maybe not on the social side of things. I'll just say, and I realize we're straying from B2B, but Certain communities have taken very serious root in Google Plus, and if it's a if those communities are part of your market, you absolutely need to be there. Um, for us, you know, seeing what's going on in the photography world, Google Plus is absolutely something you cannot ignore if digital imaging or anything related to that is part of your business, because there are photographers just normal average photographers on Google Plus who have a million followers. The engagement and the connectivity there is off the charts. So if that's your community, you if you're not on Google Plus, you are seriously missing out. Now, there are certainly communities where that's not the case, but this is where it comes to knowing your customers. And if your customers are there, get there. So learn it, you know, find out, do the homework you need to do to see if your com your customer, customer community is there or not, and then make your decision about Google+. Plus. If you guys aren't going to ask a question, I'm, okay. <laughs> hey everyone, uh, my name is Alex Braga. I have a, a question, there's been a lot of great discussion around strategy and earn and pay media. Um, I want to bring up the topic of content development um, as it relates to B2B um, and social media. Um, I've been on the agency side. Um, I'm now on the brand product side. So when I think about content development, you can hire a partner. It becomes costly and uh, timely. And internally, it's a matter of resources. So I'd be curious as to your insights and perspectives on content development. I mean, I'll just speak briefly to it, I think that content strategy in and of itself is incredibly important. Um, and whether it's, you know, internal or bringing in outside resources, whether it's video or white papers or infographics or whatever, I mean, that's the core, in my opinion, to a solid social strategy. 
I completely agree. When I sit down and, and people say, oh, we want to talk about social media for our company, and I say, okay, well, you're going to call it social media, and I'm going to call it content marketing being blessed out via social media platforms. Um, hopefully, a lot of that has come across in terms of the items that we've shared as examples. But when it comes to great content, I mean, this is a place where companies really have to figure out whether they're going to invest money in having somebody produce it for them, or they're going to invest internally in terms of time um, having people produce it in-house. Um, you have to invest in it either way, and depending on where your company is from a resource standpoint, how the um, content production talent is um, internally, you have to make those decisions um, based, upon, based upon that framework, but um, there, there needs to be an investment made. So as a shout out to sensational outlets like Mashable, as a wrap up, let's go across the panel and go through our top three tips for B2B social media, starting with you. Teach your employees how to use LinkedIn. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> teach, teach, yeah, no. <laughs> teach your employees Teach your employees how to use LinkedIn. Um, let them get used to that in terms of sharing about work. Um, and you can create an army of employees that, that can help your efforts. Um, that's one. Two is um, remember that you know, you're blessed to have a highly specific audience. Just don't forget it because you're on Facebook. And three, repeat one and two. I don't know how um, I guess I'll start with um, video. I think social video is uh, going to be more and more important. Uh, YouTube is now the second largest search engine in the world, um, bigger than Bing, Yahoo, MSN all combined. And how-to videos in search that also show up in Google search um, are really important. Much higher engagement, much easier to show up in natural search. Um, higher click-throughs, calls to action, all of it. And, you know, two-minute, three-minute little snippets are easily digestible and much more shareable. So I think that when people are thinking about content and strategy, video increasingly needs to be sort of at least high up on the list, if not number one up on the list. Um, number two, I guess, is really thinking about the human side of B2B. I mean, it's like I said, dramatic, but when someone says B2B is dead, what they mean is you're talking to people, not just companies. And um, I'd say maybe a 2A is the improvisation piece of allowing people to be human when they're speaking and not making them feel like corporate automatons. Um, I'll speak exclusively around LinkedIn, guys. <laughs> That's just right. Uh, LinkedIn's one of the has some of the best demographics in the world. So your LinkedIn profile is where it all starts, and so use it to your advantage. If you don't have a headshot, have a headshot. You know, imagine going to a networking community or networking meeting, everyone walking around with a paper bag on your head. You know, it's not that inviting. So have a headshot. Have a subject line, not necessarily what your role is, but you know who you think you are. You know who, who you identify yourself as. Your LinkedIn profile does not need to be your resume. You know, if you worked in a clothing store and now you're in B2B marketing, like it doesn't need to be on your profile. Just who you are, your work experience relevant to who you are today. 
um, I think are the most important thing. And you know what? Just think what comes up at the top when someone looks at your LinkedIn profile. Those pieces of your profile that show up first, you know, above the fold, above where they scroll down. That's the most important part to focus on. So make sure that summary, headline, headshot, all that stuff is super important. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to uh, get some value out of LinkedIn from a free standpoint. If you have, a, if you're a small business owner and you have a small grouping of company followers, it's a great way for you to send out proactive messages to those followers in the realm of company status updates. Um, there, we've just seen some fantastic success, and we also now allow you to target those company status updates to just your employees or just into certain demographics, so it, you now can be very, very focused with your message. Um, and be relevant. I think that the more relevant your message is, uh, the better you know, just reception that you're going to have, the more customer advocacy you're going to be able to generate for yourself, and, and the better results that you're going to have. And just be patient with it, because stuff like that doesn't really happen overnight. Oh boy, I get the problem of coming up with something somebody hasn't said already. Um, I'd say it's really, it's three points. Know your customers, because you're not gonna make, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do a good job if you don't know who your customers are and where they are and what they want. Create good content, video or otherwise, because if you don't, your customers aren't gonna pay any attention. And um, I'd say finally, uh, remember it's not just a megaphone, engage. So don't just blast out your messaging, but be there, be responsive, be reactive, don't, you know, and, and be, be a part of a conversation. Let's thank our panel for showing up. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.